You tell me, what is this land we attack? Because we have been here for 40,000 years, longer than you camps. If you're going to mining in this land, you're going to destroy the land, uh, clean hands. And clean hands will come out and destroy the whole universe world. Mad Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching Where the Green Ants Dream from 1984. It was directed by Werner Herzog, written by Werner Herzog, with additional dialogue by Bob Ellis. It stars Bruce Spence, I apologize in advance, Wanjuk Marika and Roy Marika. We are watching this movie specifically because of Bruce Spence in the lead role. We got to see him as a supporting character. Now we get to see him more or less carry a film. I have never heard of this film. Mm -hmm. I know absolutely nothing about it. So I'm going in as a complete blank slate. Now, didn't I show you the trailer a couple of times? If you did, I don't remember. Oh, I thought I did. Okay. You probably did. You know I don't have a great memory. Yeah. The only thing I really know about this movie is that it involves... Land contractors and Aborigines who own the land, and there's like courtroom scenes. I am pretty sure Nick Lothoris from Mad Max 79, and also the guy who helped write later on Max movies, I think he's in this as a lawyer. Um, that's pretty much it. I really don't know all that much about <laughs> acclaimed German director Werner Herzog. This will be, as far as I know, the first Herzog film that I've ever seen. I was looking through his filmography. He, over a career that has lasted since 1962 all the way up to 2016, he directed 68 movies, which is a lot. In amongst those are a lot of documentaries. I don't recognize too many of them. Uh, 2005's Grizzly Man is one that stands out to me. He did a lot of work in the 80s and late 70s. He did a remake of Nosferatu in 1979 called Nosferatu the Vampire. Now that one, the original Nosferatu was made back in 1922, so big update on that one. Mm -hmm. And then there's another movie that he did two years before Where the Green Ants Dream in 1982 called Fitzcarraldo. And that one stands out in my mind because it's the story of a guy who wants to build an opera house in the middle of the jungle. And I guess to do that, he needs to take his steamboat and haul it up one side of a mountain and bring it back down the other. And apparently the production was so much of a circus that Herzog had invited a documentary crew to, you know, show the process and like the documentary, I guess, is as famous as the movie itself. I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't really know that much about it. Just going off of what I've heard. Apparently, Herzog also did another movie called Aguirre, The Wrath of God about a bunch of conquistadors looking for El Dorado. That's really well renowned. But like I said, don't really know what to expect. I have heard that Where the Green Ants Dream is one of Herzog's more normal films, so I've got high hopes for that. So he's that kind of director. Yeah, he's, according to his Wikipedia page, a German screenwriter, film director, actor, author, and opera director considered to be one of the greatest figures of the new German cinema, along with, you know, the likes of Fassbender, Trota, Schlondorf, you know, those type of people, I assume. I think we're just going to jump into this with both feet. It's not too long, I don't think. I think it's only an hour and 40 minutes. We're also branching out a little bit by using YouTube movies, so we're going to see how that works. Oh, that's right. So. First time for that. I'm sure it'll be fine. YouTube's yeah. pretty good about that, but we'll we'll play the trailer for you everyone you can listen to that when we come back we'll have watched the movies we'll start off with our initial reaction go through the plot recap you know the drill by now but we'll be back
We're going to be blasting again soon. You've got to move. Boom, boom, quick, quick, understand? This is the place where the green ants dream. Ants! Green ants dreaming here? Well, it's not visible, but there's nowhere else in Australia where the Earth's magnetic field is so abnormally distorted. And you've measured that? Yes, yes, of course. And because the green ant is the only living creature on Earth with a sensory organ attuned to magnetic fields. Like a, a small green living compass. Oh! Oh, turn that off! That one right there, you care of it? You tell me, what is it, Land Protect? Because we have been here for 40,000 years, longer than you camps. Well, that's an option we've not considered, naturally. But you must absolutely understand that we will take legal steps. Here, you talk about progress over and over again. And where does it lead the Aborigine? It is progress into nothingness. Order. This court is not a forum for political arbitrary. Pasarela, va llevando la pelota dos, va Pasarela, ataca Pasarela, va Holguín entrando, pelota para Kempe, busca el área, se va llevando la pelota, se metió en área penal, sigue avanzando, resta corta el defensor, carga Bertoni, va a sacar el tiro bajo, hay un rebote, entra la rosa, tira de zurda, y el arquero está bateando al córner, cuarto córner para Argentina. And we're back. Yes, we are. Now, I'm going to preface my initial question by saying that I do not feel that this movie represents all of German cinema. So, Julia, what did you think of your first foray into German cinema? I'm not really sure what I think. (laughs) (laughs) This movie jumped around a lot. Yeah, yeah, it did. In ways that sometimes I understood, and sometimes I didn't. Mm-hmm. Like one of the very last scenes where Hackett is talking to Mr. Arnold, they open up the scene, and the two men are facing each other, but then looking off to the side towards the camera, and it's just very abrupt mm-hmm. and awkward, and their whole conversation is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a hard time deciding what I think about this movie as a whole. Yeah. Hopefully us discussing it will help me pinpoint my opinions. Yeah. Fresh off the end of the movie. I, I mean, it wasn't bad. Like we've seen some bad movies and we are going to watch bad movies in the future. Yeah, and I agree. This was not a bad movie. It was just different, for sure. Mm-hmm. I found it fascinating as a German filmmaker presenting what he views Australians as. That's, a, that's one of the things I kept thinking as we were watching this. That this is a foreigner's idea of Australia. That this is not a production made by someone who is native to that land. Now, I should amend that by saying that, you know, Bob Ellis, who did a lot of the dialogue there, is from Australia, and he was actually the grocery store owner. Oh, okay. The one that was talking to Hackett. Okay. I mean, he was there to help 
Herzog with the dialogue. So there is a little bit of that influence in there. But for the most part, the story is written by someone who did not call Australia as their native home. So should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. I was unable to find a comprehensive blow-by-blow synopsis of this movie. So I'm really hoping that we'll be able to really remember the little bits and pieces of the story. Because even though this movie was only an hour and 40 minutes, did it feel longer to you? It did feel long to me. Like the opening shots, beautifully shot, are, I would say, windstorms. On the Australian and outback, tornadoes too. Yeah, yes. Over classical operatic music, and then really the first thing that we see is just these great mounds shown underneath the opening credits. Now, when I purchased this on YouTube, I'll, I'll say that it was very easy to do. Congratulations, YouTube! But <laughs> the opening credits and titles were in German, and so we were really nervous. That when we actually got into the meat and potatoes of this minute, that it was all going to be in German, like badly dubbed German. Luckily, that was not the case. Yeah, I gotta tell you, when Bruce Spence had his first line, I was very relieved. I really thought it was going to be in German because all of the opening credits were in German. Yeah. Now, what did you think of Bruce Spence in this role? I thought it was great. I thought it was well acted. It was so nice to see Bruce Spence... Play more of a normal person. Yeah. I guess. You know, the gyro captain is so quirky and post-apocalyptic with his teeth and his yellow jumpsuit. He's just so quirky. But Lance Hackett is just a very normal guy. Yeah. Doing his job and just trying to live his life. And he's a normal guy thrust into a very abnormal position. Yes. Like, he is the geologist for the Ayers Mining Company. He is there helping them probe the land for resources. And the first thing that we see him dealing with, he's sitting in his office, he's pouring over charts, and he's got this old lady sitting next to him. Miss Strelo, or Miss Strelo, however you pronounce her name, played by Colleen Clifford. Now, she looked really familiar to me for some reason, and maybe she just has one of those old lady faces. But she's there complaining that she's lost her dog. She's lost little Benjamin Franklin. The reason I recognize her is because she was in a six-episode run on Prisoner Cell Block H, where she played Edie Wharton. Oh, yes! I remember her now. She was the old lady that was friends with Lizzie Birdsworth. Yes. And then she actually died in custody. Yes. And And Lizzie took it really hard. Yes, she did. So that's why she looked familiar. Yeah, now that you say that, I see it. But she's in there complaining that her dog is lost, and she's trying to get Lance to use all of his technology to find her dog that has wandered out into the mines. And so Lance is sitting there dealing with that, and in stumbles one of the more recognizable faces of the work crew, Cole, played by Ray Barrett, and he is eager to get the work going, so to speak. Because he wants to get this mining operation going. Yeah, he's eager in all of his work. Mm-hmm. For better or worse, he's eager. This story of Miss Strelo and her lost Benjamin Franklin sticks around a lot longer than I expected it to. Like, we take steps away from it, but we always seem to come back to it. I was kind of surprised that we kept coming back to the storyline. I thought it would just be an interaction to help introduce us to Lance Hackett mm-hmm. and to the company, like kind of explaining to us a little bit about what capabilities they have and what they're doing there and what capabilities they do not have. Oh, nope. We kept coming back to it. And I swear there was some sort of lesson in there, but I couldn't, I did not walk away with a good sense of why we followed that storyline. Yeah. The... Of the different storylines in this movie, hers is definitely the least interesting because we go from the interaction between Lance and Miss Strelo. From the initial interaction where we meet Lance and Cole, we go outside and it turns out that the Ayers Mining Company is being held up by a local tribe of Aborigines who are very opposed to the mining operation going on because this land that they are surveying, trying to find uranium 
is the home to the green ants. Specifically, it's the dreamlands for the green ants. I'm not sure that the movie makes clear that what that means is that this is sacred land to those aboriginals. Right. I don't think the aborigines do a very good job of explaining why the mining company can't mine there. Mm -hmm. All they ever say is it's where the green ants dream. If you kill the land, you kill us. Well, we don't know what that means. The judge doesn't know what that means. Nobody knows what that means. We know what sacred land means. Sacred land means you don't get to touch it. So I just don't think they made a, did a very good job of making their case and helping people to understand why. You could come at it from the perspective that sacred land is sacred land and it doesn't need to be justified, which I think is the angle that Herzog was coming from. Right. What I'm saying is that they didn't do a very good job of communicating that this was sacred land. Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea of things that are sacred is kind of abstract to begin with. I mean, it is, and you, Mr. Can't, you can't test for sacredness. That's exactly why sacred lands are protected all over the world. If somebody says a land is sacred, then it's protected. And I know different governments do varying levels of a good job doing that. But, you know, we try. One question before we get too far out into the movie that I think you and I both had was these mounds that we were shown in the opening and that are in the background almost the whole time. Like the whole time that they're in the outback, they're there in the background. They look man-made. So the question was, are they man-made or are they made by the ants? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they're made by the ants. Well, later on, we're going to go through a montage with Lance, and he's talking to all of these different people. And there's one ant expert, and he says that they're actually closer to termites. But he says that the ants can make those giant mounds. But we are shown in the opening of the film a piece of machinery making a pile that exact same shape. Yeah. So it's very hard for us to distinguish. And maybe that's just part of the filmmaking. We're supposed to question, like, is this land... For the ants, because the ants make these mounds, or do the humans have a better right to it because they make the mounds as well? I don't know. It's it's Herzog. <laughs> yeah. If I can't explain something, or if it baffles me, I'm just going to say, eh, it's Herzog. Because <laughs> he just seems like that kind of filmmaker. But the main conflict in this movie is between this Aborigine tribe and... The Ayers Mining Company. So the leader of the tribe, the elder, is played by Roy Marika. He plays uh, Dayapu. And then his, I guess, right-hand man, his helper, Miller Tibi, is played by Wanjik Marika. Marika. I don't know. I'm probably pronouncing them all wrong because that's what I do. But they initially try to work with Lance. And Cole is hearing none of it. And he almost runs over several of them with his bulldozer. Yeah, he starts to bury them in dirt. And actually, like, they're sitting on the ground, he actually, like, covers their legs in dirt. He was really going to do it. Yeah. Lance, of course, is more corporate-minded, and he stops Cole, threatening him with a big old giant metal pipe. Yeah. Because if Cole did run over an entire tribe's worth of people, he would be in huge trouble, and the company would be in huge trouble. It would be... Just a complete, awful situation for everybody involved. You say that Lance is corporate-minded. I think throughout this movie, Lance is not a corporate man. I think he's his own man. I think he acts independently. And I think he thinks independently. And I think he stopped the bulldozer because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Because... No land and no mining is worth injuring people over. Well, human decency, yes, but also you know that you don't roll people over like that. Right. A, because it's immoral, but B, because then, you know, the company would be liable for those damages. I guess we're both saying the same thing here. <sighs> yeah, I guess so. We're not, but let's move on. So Lance calls up to the head office, and he's like, we got a situation here. And apparently they've had situations like this before. Yeah, of course they have. He, like, references another situation like that. Yeah. I, I think 
speaking in broad terms of the entire world and the entire history of the world, people, colonizers, come in and think that the land is empty, ready for the taking. Just because there's nobody currently on the land doesn't mean somebody doesn't consider it their land. Just because they arrived in Australia and there's this great huge outback that is deserted doesn't mean nobody claims that as their land. You mean you can't just show up someplace with a flag, plant it down, and say, I own all of this? Right. <laughs> Someone should tell the British that, like, 400 years ago. So, out comes the executive to talk to the tribal leaders, and they're trying to come to some sort of agreement, and of course they can't. So, Lance is chosen by the... What was he, a vice president or something like that? The company well, guy? I thought he was the attorney. Well, he, I think he was from the legal office. Yeah. So I think he was a attorney. Okay. But he basically tells Lance, listen, you need to work with these people and figure out what they want. And Lance is like, well, I'm only a geologist. I'm not a you know, sociologist or something like that. And the executive's like, oh, well, I thought you were just an employee of the Ayers Mining Company. He's like, well, I guess I, I am, technically. Yeah, this this is exactly what I meant before. He doesn't see himself as an employee of Ayers. He sees himself as a geologist who happens to work for Ayers. Yeah. He sees himself as his passion first and then his employment. So this kind of begins Lance's journey to understand where they're coming from. And he spends a lot of time talking to the Aborigines there at the site. He goes around and visits other people, trying to learn more about them, trying to think of all the different places he goes. Well, first he goes to Mr. Arnold, and I was really confused by this. Yeah. About why he went to Mr. Arnold. I mean, once we get to know him, we know why he went. We know his motivation for going, but... There was no discussion of, hey, I know this guy. I think I should go see him. He just popped out of the blue with no information about who he was or why he was the way he was. Mm -hmm. He's decidedly anti-white man, pro-Aborigine. Played, of course, by Nicola Thoris. Yes. That nose is recognizable anywhere. Absolutely. I was surprised by how short he was. <laughs> Yeah, considering the last time we saw him, it was just him and five foot seven Mel Gibson. Right. And now he's on the screen with just the six foot six Bruce Spence. Just dwarfing him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bruce Spence's height is very noticeable in several scenes of this film. I particularly liked the elevator scenes. Yeah. Both of them. Where it's very awkward. There's a lot of just awkward standing around. In this movie? Yeah. Yeah, they're just awkwardly standing in the elevator, and he's towering above everybody else in there. The meeting with Mr. Arnold does not go well. Arnold is very, um, what's the word I want to use? Uh, uninterested in dealing with Lance. Which is a shame, I think. If he had at least heard what Lance wanted to talk about... Because he wanted to talk about this tribe and how they view the land and how they've been treated in the past. And he wanted to see it from their perspective. And that's exactly what Arnold, like, wants to do. Mm -hmm. So if he had just stopped arguing for five seconds, he would see that him and Lance were kind of on the same page. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure after he goes to see Arnold, that's when he goes to see the... Christian minister guy, right? Yes. Who's doing like a school. Did you get the sense that the Aborigines who were there really didn't understand necessarily what was going on? Like they were being forcibly converted to Christianity? Well, the guy that was there definitely didn't seem sympathetic to their culture because he was teaching them a Christian song and then encouraging them to sing it in their language. Yeah. Thereby taking their own native beliefs that they'd grown up with and replacing it, you know, supplementing it with his own. Yeah. I don't know. The people just didn't seem very enthusiastic. Yeah. They didn't really seem like they wanted to be there. They seemed like they were there because they were told to be there. Yeah. I think Lance got the same impression because the minister stopped to say, can I help you? Do you want to talk? And Lance was like, no. I found out what I need to find out. Yeah. I think he saw the same thing, that their culture was being taken away and replaced with Christianity. Yeah, so he 
decided that he didn't want to stop and talk to anyone there because they weren't going to help him in his quest to understand. Yeah. Now, we did get that one scene that I mentioned earlier, the one in the supermarket. Yeah, I really like that scene. So, in the supermarket, there's just one particular aisle where there's a small circle of Aborigine men, and they're just sitting there. And so Lance calls over the stock boy, who is a man, played by Bob Ellis, the uh, guy who wrote the dialogue in the screenplay. And Lance says, you know, why are they sitting there? And the supermarket guy explains that that's where the last tree for miles and miles around was before they built the supermarket. And that that is the spot where the men go to dream about their children. You go to the spot, you dream about the kids, later on the kids happen. And I found it as a stark example of how you can try to pave over things with modernity, but sacred land is sacred land. Right. I really like that they still knew, even though the tree had been cut down and paved over and built over, that they still knew exactly where the tree was. Yeah. That definitely tells us that there is something about that spot that is special, that they could sense and that they knew so they could find that exact spot again, even after all the changes. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. Of course, the sarcastic side of me was like, well, if they spend all day sitting in this spot where the tree was, there's not going to be any children. They need to go back and make children. I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. But that was the sarcastic side of me. I actually thought that the idea and the concept was really sweet. Like they go and they dream of their children. Yeah, I thought that was really sweet. Hmm. Amidst all of this wandering around, getting information, I'm not sure exactly how many little conversations happen between Lance and Millerity. Miller. Man, these names are killing me. Milleritibi? Millerit. Wow. There's just not. Okay, so there's one Aborigine that is the tribal elder, one Aborigine that's got the beard. Roy and Wanjuk. I'm just going to go by their actor's name because they're easier for me to pronounce as a lazy American. Anyway, so Lance is talking to Wanjuk, and Wanjuk is explaining to him how different they are, how their sensibilities and their viewpoints and their philosophies are just different. And over the course of the movie, we get to see how Lance just, his mind gets so boggled by these cosmic perceived problems and whatnot. And he's sitting there when Wanjik's just like, you are out there, man. I like the idea that Wanjik kind of presented that the white men are lost. And part of that reason is because the questions that we ask are too big. Yeah. And I don't agree with him. I think it's important for people to ask big questions because that's how you come up with big answers. And that's how you figure things out. But I appreciate his point of view that if you ask questions that are too big, you run the risk of getting lost. And his reply is that the white man is lost. Mm. And the, this tribe, they keep their questions in a contained area. I don't want to say small, but, you know, in a contained area. That way they always know the right thing to do. If this land is their sacred place because it's where the green ants dream, then they're not going to allow mining there. Yeah. And all of the things that are offered to them, they're offered money and a museum and all these things, and they don't even think about it. They're like, no, 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 no. And it's an easy answer for them because they know what's important. Right. They know exactly what they want, what they need to continue their way of life, and that's the land. Yeah. So that's it. That's like, it's the end of the negotiation. At one point, Lance does go to an expert of sorts. An um, entomologist? I think he's an entomologist. I think that's what they call the bug doctors. Yeah. This guy is out on a green hill somewhere, and he is just crazy obsessed with these ants. Yeah, he's a little cuckoo. What's interesting, though, is that the green ants are not actually ants. They're closer to termites and cockroaches. Yes. Than actual ants. I did appreciate that it turned out that green ants were real. Yeah. For the longest time, I thought the green ants were a metaphor for the uranium under the ground. Oh, that's a good idea. You it didn't know. even occur to me that they were a metaphor for the uranium. I just thought they were mythological. Because the company wants to come in and mine the uranium. And of course, uranium is something that can be used in nuclear weapons. And so the idea that you cannot wake the green ants or else the whole world will be destroyed. <gasps> oh. That's what I thought was going on. Then we met the entomologist, and he was like, oh, no, these guys are totally real. And he has a big old glass box of them. Yeah. And apparently green ants 
can sense magnetic fields. Yeah, they're quite remarkable. They can tell north and south, and they align themselves north and south. And they can tell when storms are coming. And the way they procreate is dramatic. Yep. (laughs) We, We got quite the lecture about these bugs. Yes, we did. Right in the middle of the film. Which, if you're going to do a scene of exposition the way this was, I thought it was done well. Yeah. It wasn't thorough. It was sporadic. (laughs) And Lance wasn't really getting his questions answered. He had specific questions that he wanted to know. The scientist, the entomologist, didn't really care what Lance's questions were. He had his own details about the green ants that he was going to tell Lance about. He had his own path that he was going. Yeah, it was something. Finding themselves at an impasse, unable to reach a compromise, they have determined that they need to go to court over the matter. Mm -hmm. And so the mining executive, I guess, extends a bit of an olive branch before they go to court. And he brings our two main Aborigine characters to the city. Yes. To kind of show off modernity. Right. To kind of tempt them with money. They had already offered them money, but maybe they thought that the tribe didn't understand what money can provide them. Yeah. So he's showing them, this is what money can provide you. The executive was like, we wanted to bring you to our comfortable place to show you our point of view. And of course, there's this gag where they are walking through the city and there's like this Casio watch that keeps going off at inopportune times and they go into a building to ride an elevator This was a little confusing, although at the end, when all was said and done, I look back on it with humor. Yeah. So they go into an elevator, the four of them, the executive, Lance, and the two Aborigine characters whose name I can't pronounce. They get in there, they press the button for the 19th floor, and the elevator starts going, and then it shakes a little bit, the doors open, and they are trapped between floors. I thought we were preparing for like a few minute long scene where they're waiting to be rescued. No, they all of a sudden jump to a Greek restaurant where they're all sitting having dinner. Yep. And it seems like a legit Greek restaurant. Yeah. Not a touristy Greek restaurant. They come out with drinks after the meal and do... uh, I don't know, I mean... So the waiter starts singing in Greek. Yes. And the tribal elder... Let's just call him elder at this point. Okay. Well, elder and beard. (laughs) Okay. So Elder starts singing in his own language. I think he... Oh, he gives a face, too. Oh, yeah. That's when he gives a face. Like, uh, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why am I putting up with this crap yeah. face? He's listening to this Greek waiter sing, and he's like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Which I'm kind of surprised, because an overarching theme of this movie is to respect local traditions. Well, this song is a Greek tradition, so respect it. Yeah, but he but starts anyways. singing up. He sings oh. over the waiter. Oh, he does. He has a very powerful voice. He's barely opening his mouth. He has a very powerful voice. Yeah. And so Lance is like, well, what, is he, what was he singing about? And so Beard's like, well, it's, it's a thank you song to thank the cook for the meal that we just ate. Which was lovely. Yeah. I don't know why he had to interrupt the Greek song. Well. But, uh, you know. I mean, based on my experience alone, any time a waiter sings, it's just annoying. Yeah, okay, so while the waiter was singing, they weren't showing us anybody else at the table, only the elder who rolled his eyes and then started singing over him. Yeah. Yeah, if that would have been my table, I don't want anybody singing at my dinner table. No. I don't really care who you are, what your tradition is, I'm going to find it awkward. Yeah, when we go to restaurants and it's one of ours birthday, like, we never tell the server. No, absolutely not. The last thing I want is for some waiter to come over here and sing a knockoff version of happy birthday because they can't use the real version of happy birthday but they can now yeah but they won't change it no they won't actually it's been so long since we've had a happy birthday sung to us maybe they do sing happy birthday now yeah i don't want to find out i'd rather not neither do i i really really don't after we get this little song interlude lance pipes up with this harebrained theory and he's like guys i got it (laughs) we're still in the elevator like, we're still trapped between floors. And he's like... We're so desperate to get out of there that we imagined ourselves going to dinner. So the situation is so awkward <laughs> that he's like, guys, this can't be real. We've got to be delusional. 
Oh, gosh. And it seriously made me think maybe they are still in the elevator. I was waiting for it. I was waiting to cut back to the elevator, and they're, like, sitting on the floor with their jackets off, and it's hot, and they're sweaty. And, yeah, I really thought that was going to happen. But, no, the next thing we see is them walking into the lobby of the building, and they go back to that same elevator. (laughs) Which, why would you go back to that same same elevator? elevator? Why isn't that elevator out of service? Yeah. Like, we don't know if they actually got to the 19th floor the first time, so why would they think they would be able to do it the second time? But they get in that elevator, and they press the button, and they get going up, and then it gets caught yet again. Yes. (laughs) And then Lance says something like, oh, it looks like we're stuck. Again. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we didn't stick with them for their rescue. No. It just fades to whatever happens next, which... Which is the airfield. That's right. They're they're fixing to go home. That's when Elder wanders off. They go find him. He's he's not that far away. He's just out of view around the airplane. And he is staring at this Air Force plane, which has a name. Oh, tongue tip my tongue. Caribou. It's a caribou. It's the kind of plane. Name of the plane. And Elder says, I want that plane. And so the legal guy what's his name the legal guy what's his name he's in the movie a lot we really should know his name i don't know is it fitzsimmons it could be could be i don't know but the plane is a de havilland canada dhc4 caribou okay from the let's see uh, it's designated by the United States military as a CV-2 and later a C-7 caribou. It's Canadian designed and produce specialized cargo airplane with short takeoff and landing capability. Yeah, that was on display. Mm-hmm. The short takeoff and landing. Uh, what's his name? Fletcher? I didn't even catch it. Okay. So they're on the runway. They see the plane and Elder's like, that, I want that. And so... The executive's like, well, if you want that, we're going to need an airfield out there. And so the aborigines are like, okay, we'll build an airfield. Sure, of course. And so they get back to the mining location and they build like a quote-unquote airfield that's big enough to, I guess, put the plane on maybe. But even then it looks Mm -hmm. too small for that. Yeah. So they clearly didn't understand what they needed to do, which is... Uh, I'm just going to call him Fletcher because I'm pretty sure that's his name. Yeah. I suppose that's really the fault of Fletcher and Lance for not explaining to them, okay, if you want this, you got to build an airfield, an airstrip that is this size. Mm. But on the other hand, they didn't really want to give them the plane at all. So any impediment to doing that, they were going to let happen. The next morning, Lance sees the airstrip that they have built and says, no, 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 no. This isn't going to work. You need at least a half a mile. Hey, I've got some machines to help you out, but you're going to have to do some of the work. They don't do any of the work. Nope. It's all the mining guys that it do is. it. It is. They, oh, if I were the mining company, I'd be pissed. Like, they had to pay for all that. They had to pay for all of the fuel and the workers and the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think they're showing a stereotype that the aborigines are lazy, that they didn't even help to build the airfield. Yeah. That they said that they would build, and they did nothing for it. I feel like this is a stereotype. Yeah. And they definitely employed other stereotypes in this movie. There's one Aboriginal character who is always drunk, and the people are never actually shown doing anything. No, they're always just sitting. They're always just sitting there. Hmm. And they're played to be not very smart. Like I said, it's written primarily by an outsider. Yeah. <laughs> So the company builds the land strip. The Australian Air Force flies in one of their caribou and they just park it on the land strip. And the Aborigine tribe, they pile on inside without signing the receipt. And they light a little campfire inside. And the Air Force guys are like, well, we better drain the fuel out of the wings. Yeah, where'd they put the fuel? Uh, Probably in cans or a tank somewhere. I guess so. I said it's a work site, so someone would have use for it. Right, there's probably tanks everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So this plane sits there for quite a while because we need to go and have a big old long court scene. Did you feel it was long? I did. Oh, I I didn't. I mean... I actually felt it was short. Yeah? I guess this goes back to my complaint in the beginning that the Aborigines didn't do a very good job of making their case. 
And things in this movie take a long time. Yeah. Everything in this movie just takes a long time. Everything moves slowly in this movie. And that's okay. Not every movie needs to move at a breakneck speed. But the Aborigines, especially in the court scene, just didn't say anything beyond it's where the green ants dream. Yeah. And if if you kill this land, you're going to kill our people. That's all they said. And there were some interesting bits. They brought Mr. Arnold in, and Mr. Arnold kind of explained their point of view that they don't see the world in the same way that we see the world. He used numbers as the example. that They only count up to three. Anything above three is many. But they still know how many they have. Like, they can look at their herd of 600 cattle, and if two are missing, they're going to know. Yeah. They're just not going to count, hey, I only have 598 cows. They just know that two are missing. That was his example. They just see the world in a different way. That was very interesting. I wish we had more stuff like that. I don't really have much to say about the court scene. I'm not a huge procedural type watcher. Yeah. But in the end, the court decision comes down on the side of the company and they are given legal right to mine the area. And so we go back to the mining area and Lance feels very um, bad about the situation. Very remorseful. He does. By the end of the movie, you get the sense that he's fed up. He's done. Yeah. So the first thing he does is he brings Elder and Beard, I guess we're calling him. Yeah. Who are sitting in the cockpit of the plane. He brings them some food and just kind of chats with them for a few minutes. Interesting thing that he asks them, he said, hey, why do you guys always stare east? And Beard's reply was... I can't remember exactly what he said, but to the effect of that's where the dreamlands are. That's why we stare east. Yeah. Which is very interesting if you know, and I'm probably digging myself into a hole that I can't really fill, but lots of world religions have a thing about east. Mm. That it's an important direction, things like that. So I appreciated that there was the similarities to other cultures in the world that have a thing for facing east. Yeah. It's like magnetic fields or something like that. Yeah. So there is one particular person in the Aborigine group that I guess used to be in the Australian Air Force. Yeah. I believe him. Yeah. Yeah. The woman he's sitting next to, I love the expression on her face. The whole time he's talking, you can tell she is just thinking in her head, this is complete bullshit. Yeah. So he's like, okay, fine. I'll prove it. I can fly this plane. (laughs) And so, so he gets up. And he's sloshed. Yeah, and he staggers to the plane. I love the way he pats it, almost like patting a dog on the belly mm-hmm. or a horse. Now, one way you can tell that this was written by someone who's not from Australia, the guy who's always drunk, he's always holding a bottle of Fosters. Yeah, definitely a stereotype. I don't know. Maybe it's not a stereotype. I don't know. Australians. Is your affinity for Fosters a stereotype or is it legit? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's, it's a stereotype. stereotype? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. I don't know. But he gets in the plane yeah. and he gets in the pilot seat and the tribal elder is sitting in the cockpit with him and they just take off and fly away. And Cole bursts into Lance's office and says they've taken the plane and Lance is calling the head office like they've taken the plane because you get the sense that they weren't supposed to take the plane? No, the plane was not a gift. It was on loan. They never brought up a subject of, hey, do you have somebody who can fly the plane? How are you going to fuel the plane? How are you going to maintain the plane? No, it was, here's a plane. Yeah. Have fun. Sit in the plane. Build a fire in the plane. And then eventually we're going to take the plane back. Yeah, you get that sense. Yeah. So they just fly away. And then it's this big mystery of what happened to the plane. I kind of feel like it should have been a bigger mystery. Like they called in the police and they were searching all of these sectors on the map. And we got to see another instance of Max Max Fairchild showing up. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Hugh Key's burn was... I missed him. ...in the scene where Lance was talking to the executive. He was the guy with the mustache, but I could be wrong. He's only listed in the credits as mining executive, so I don't really know. I think most likely he was in the courtroom. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But yeah, they can't find the plane. And so Lance goes over to the Aborigines, and there are two of them that just showed up from the mountains Uh somewhere. And they're like, oh yeah, we saw a big old ant with giant wings, and it was up in the mountains. And they're like, oh, 
that's where the plane is. Okay. Yeah, which actually is really interesting and important because that's how the ants breed, is their horde flies over the mountain, and then two of the ants, the ants in general are sexless. So when they migrate over the mountains, two of the ants turn into a male and a female, and then they breed. And 40,000 eggs. Yeah, 40,000 eggs a day. The uh, scientist guy didn't say how long they do this for. But basically, they're making a whole new generation. Yeah. The old generation, I think, is going to die off and going to be replaced with this new generation. So the mountain tribe probably assumed that they were seeing the queen ant. Yeah. They found a wing, right? That's what they said. They found a wing. I think so. Yeah. But we still don't find out what happened to the elder and the, the pilot. Nope, because really, after that, it's just a bit of a slog to the end. Lance more or less lets the mining go forward. He talks a bit to the old lady at the end who's still waiting out by the entrance of the mine with a bowl of dog food waiting for her dog to come out. And then he leaves his boombox with an aborigine kid. Yep. He goes and visits Arnold one last time and then just wanders out into the bush. And that's... Just how the movie ends. Yes. It is what it is. You're right. It is what it is. I was hoping our discussion would clarify how I felt about it, and I think it did. There were moments that I really enjoyed mm. that I got a kick out of, or I felt their plight. There are moments that I enjoyed, but as a whole, like, I don't, I don't know. This yeah. movie is just, I don't know. It is what it is. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for the movie, and there is one particular paragraph that stands out. It says, Critics of the film found it uncomfortably placed between a documentary and a feature film. Philip Adams was particularly incensed and claimed that the film implied that the Australian government was against the Aborigines, leading him to write an article titled, Damn it, Herzog, You Are a Liar. (laughs) Okay. Yep. So apparently not everybody was pleased by this movie, but I can definitely see where critics are coming from. The idea that it's a cross between a documentary and just a regular drama. This is not based on true story. This is not Gallipoli-esque. This is just a director's story that he has written as a drama. And like I said before, it is what it is. It's, It's not all things to all people. And I feel very lukewarm about it overall. Lukewarm is a good word. Yeah. I don't regret having spent two hours watching it. No. But if we hadn't done this movie, I would be fine. Yeah. I really think it was a good decision because we got to see more of Bruce Spence. And not him as a supporting character, him as a main character. Yeah, he really was the star of this movie. And we were with him the whole time, lots of his point of view, and we got to watch him grow and learn and change his opinion and be sympathetic. And I really like Bruce Spence's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this one scene in particular that I didn't mention where he's sitting on the floor of his kitchen in his mobile home because they're out in the middle of the desert. And he's talking on the phone to some lady at the central office or something like that. He's like, what are you doing tonight? And obviously she asks him that same question. And so... He's, like, talking about how boring his night's going to be. And then he's like, well, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, you're going out with James? Yeah, he's okay for a South Australian. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, I'm pretty sure I've looked at the demographics on our website before. And we have a bunch of listeners in... Now, this is according to Squarespace Analytics, and I'm checking them as I speak here. But we have a bunch of listeners in Melbourne and Victoria... And all of that. But I don't think we have any listeners in South Australia or the Northern Territory. Yeah, they're all in either Western Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, and Victoria. We have no one in the center of the continent and no one on Tasmania. Okay. So, I mean, I guess that means we can badmouth South Australia all we want (laughs) and no one's going to hear it. (laughs) What I like about both Gallipoli and this movie is that... It shows the rivalry between the states and Australia. I mean, we have the same rivalries 
here in the United States. Oh, yeah. We make fun of Massachusetts all the time. We make fun of Maine. We make fun of Vermont. You know, every other state, there is something we can make fun of. Oh, yeah. We just have 50 of them instead of... (laughs) How many Australian states are there? Six? I think six. Yeah. Seven if you count Tasmania. Oh, okay. So... Which I'm pretty sure most people do. Yeah, well, if it's an Australian state, it's an Australian state. Yeah. (laughs) Unless it's a Puerto Rico. Australian listeners, do you count Tasmania as a state? Please let us know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it your own Puerto Rico? Right. Where they're part of your country, but have absolutely no rights. Your own private Puerto Rico. (laughs) So I was interested to see what other people thought of this movie, and there are 15 reviews on IMDb. Okay. The first one at the top of the list, and this is ordered by, I guess, helpfulness, however they judge that. I think it's a voting. Yeah. User Preston10 voted it a 10 out of 10, and that's where I got the phrase that it's Herzog's most mainstream movie. Okay. But they thought it was great. I definitely see how this is a mainstream movie. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any other Herzog movies, but, you know, I've seen wacky, crazy movies that, like, bend my mind, and this was not one of them. Yeah. There's uh, one user that rated it 9 out of 10 who called the elevator scene a transcendent cinematic moment. <laughs> really? Yep. Okay. Um, let's see. <laughs> okay. Another user rated it a 10 out of 10, calling it an excellent study on human nature. Okay, I can go with that. Mm -hmm. I'm not really seeing too many people giving it a bad rating. Oh, here we go. User Wanathan, that's Juan and then Athan, as if it was like Jonathan, but Juan, you know what I'm trying to say. Rated it a 1 out of 10, calling it a complete and utter failure. The words uneven and messy cannot do this film justice. This has to be by far Herzog's worst film to date. (laughs) Okay. Wow. There we go. I mean, for the most part, it's a lot of six star and above reviews, with the exception being that one that was a one star. It sounds to me like Herzog draws a certain crowd. Yeah. And the crowd that he draws are fans of his movies. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're very right. (laughs) The director and the subject matter aren't necessarily ones that you run out to go see. I mean, the only reason that we saw this movie was because of Bruce Spence. Right. We needed something specific to draw us to this movie. Otherwise, we never, ever would have seen it. Probably never even would have heard of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And we didn't just see it. We paid money to rent it. Yes, we did. <laughs> we didn't go out to a free streamer somewhere. We searched this out and paid money for it. Gosh darn it. Absolutely. So after hearing what other people think about this, I have to wonder if there was a favorite part of the movie that you had. Ooh. I'm going to go with the scene with the entomologist. Uh-huh. I really liked the change in scenery. The greenery that he was hanging out in was a stark difference between the flatness of the outback or the city. It was very different. And it was a pleasant difference to see that much green around. The character of the entomologist himself, he was okay. He was, you know, scatterbrained and just really into his own work. Yeah. But we got lots of information out of him. And if he had followed Lance's line of questioning, we wouldn't have learned things that became important down the road about how... The queen grows in size and she can grow up to two inches and, you know, those things that you don't have to know for the end of the movie. But if you do know those things, it helps. It helps. It just makes more little connections here and there that help you enjoy the film. So, yeah, that was my favorite part. Cool. How about you? I think my favorite part was the scene where Lance and Beard And I feel awful just referring to these characters by their physical characteristics. But I did it for Gallipoli, so why not do it here as well? Anyway, I like it when they're sitting on that hillside and Lance is talking about how there are stars moving away from us at near light speed. And who knows if they're actually heading away from us because they might be curving back around on a collision course with us. And this idea that the universe is like a seashell where it's spiraling around on itself and... He goes into this examination of where if a man hangs on a tree by a rope, he only needs one other rope to keep himself completely stationary. And 
you can't do that with the world because everything is moving and Beard is just sitting there and he looks at Lance and he's like, you're so dumb. Yes. <laughs> like he calls him on it. And he starts explaining like, your focus is too wide. You know, that's why you fail. That's why you're going to not survive throughout history and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So I liked that little interaction there. Was there anything in this movie that stood out as your least favorite thing? Oh, I'm going back and forth between two things. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have two, and they're my least favorite things for the same reason. I'm not a confrontational person. I don't like confrontation. It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. So in the very, very beginning, when the two elders are standing in the road, and Lance is trying to go somewhere to continue on the testing, and they're standing in the road right in front of him, and he has no idea why, and he's just sticking his head out the window like... You guys gotta move. It's dangerous here. And then he's dawning on him that there's a problem. He's like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? That makes me very uncomfortable. Because <laughs> they're there for such a serious reason and he hasn't realized that yet. Yeah. And the second one is in the courtroom. Mostly the prosecuting attorney. Yeah. Yeah. His, like, constant objections. Uh, yeah, that, I didn't like that. Like... <laughs> But I did like how the judge was oh. like, hey, get your head on straight. Yeah. Stop being so awful. Yeah. He kind of ripped him a new one. It was pretty great. Did you have anything that stands out as a least favorite part? My least favorite part of this movie was the end. It just kind of petered out to nothing. Mm. Like, I didn't feel that there was a conclusion. It just was. And I feel like I got nothing out of it. And I don't know if that's a Herzog thing. I don't know if that's an editing thing. I don't know if it has to do with the story or anything like that. But I just felt very unfulfilled by the ending. Yeah, I definitely see that. I got the feeling throughout the movie that I wasn't seeing something that Herzog wanted me to see. Yeah. There, there was some line running through the whole movie that was the point of it all that I missed. I mean, I got the obvious stuff about ownership and sacred lands and respect for other cultures. I got the big stuff. But I got the sense that there was something else that I wasn't getting. Yeah. And especially with the end, I thought there was something I missed. Yeah. Would you recommend this movie to someone? No, I wouldn't. If somebody wanted to see it, I would not dissuade them. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say, oh, that movie's awful. Don't bother. Yeah. Definitely. I would never say that. But I'm not going to tell people to go out of their way to see it, especially since it's not an easy movie to see for free, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be on Hulu or Amazon or anything that you can see it for free. Yeah. I think it... You have to rent it from somewhere. Yeah, it costs like three bucks for standard definition on Amazon Video. It costs, I think, four for standard on YouTube, five for HD on YouTube. Yeah, which we got the HD on YouTube, and I was impressed by the quality. Oh, yeah. I was worried that even with getting a professional recording in HD that it was still going to be noticeably old. And I thought that part of it held up very well. I was impressed by the quality. Of yeah. the movie. I would recommend this to someone who is big on Herzog. I don't think I would recommend it otherwise, though. It just didn't leave me satisfied. I thought it was very well acted. I thought everybody that was on screen did a very good job, top to bottom. Absolutely. It was very well acted as a whole. It just doesn't strike me as something that I would sit my friends down in front of and say, you guys got to watch this. You know, I could take it or leave it. And I guess that's really all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think this episode is going to peter out the same way that the movie petered out. Yeah. I mean, we have just about as much success leaving the microphones on and then just wandering away. Yeah. Because that's kind of what happens in this movie. You get to the end and Lance just wanders away. And that's what it is. So I said before that this is not a bad movie. We are going to watch some bad movies. In fact, the next movie that we have in the lineup is probably what you would call just a classically bad movie. We are 
going from movies with Mel Gibson and Bruce Spence. The next one we have in the lineup is featuring Julia's just favorite person, Mike Preston, our Papagallo. <laughs> is it a pre-Mad Max Mike Preston or a post? Oh, it's a post-Mad Max Mike Preston. Oh, okay. I would like to see work of his from his younger days. No, this one came out after Road Warrior. It's the same genre of post-apocalyptic That's sci-fi. That's right. That's right. But we'll let everyone keep an eye on the listeners page so that they can hear what that one is going to be. Yes. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Where the Green Ants Dream is presented by Project Film Production in association with Werner Herzog Film Production and Zweitus Deutsches Fernsehen. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute's review of Where the Green Ants Dream. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.